We began looking in Matthew 24 and uh, how the disciples came to Jesus and they asked three questions. When will these things take place? What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they had rightfully paired his coming with the end of the age. And what we, we highlighted in that is that Jesus didn't say, hey, don't worry about that. Don't focus in on that. It all pans out in the end. He responds to those questions by saying, see to it that no one misleads you. And he began to unfold the things that would happen, the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And one of the things we talked about is that he talked about how Israel would become a nation again and and, uh, how it's the only nation on the planet that existed as a nation, did not exist as a nation for almost 2,000 years, but just as the Bible said, became a nation again. That's never happened in world history. In 1948, it became a nation again. In Matthew 24, he talked about how that would begin that final generation. And then Jesus described, and I'm taking this a little bit out of order as far as Matthew 24, but it's all in Matthew 24. He talked about how uh, that time period would be like birth pains, like a woman becomes pregnant and you have this long pregnancy, but at a certain point, labor kicks in. And when labor kicks in, you have those contractions. And those contractions become closer and closer together and more and more intense. And so we looked at some of those things uh, there in your outline from Matthew 24. We've looked at this many times. He says, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences. And we underline that word pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places, which means in places that you wouldn't normally expect. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The idea is they're going to be more of these things. They're going to become closer and closer together and more and more intense. And, and so we, we talked about that, um, that pestilences and how you and I are living in a time period where it's the only time in, in our entire lives in modern history where the whole world has been shut down because of a pestilence, just as Jesus said. And then we talked about how for nation shall rise against nation, but that word there in the original language is ethnos, from where we would say ethnic. And so the idea is that this group would be rising against this group. And uh, we, we talked about how it would be sort of like just about the time we think we got all of this figured out uh, between the different groups. All of a sudden something happens and it rises up again. Well, Jesus warned us about these things and told us this is going to be taking place. And so because of that, we've chosen to study First and Second Thessalonians. As Paul the Apostle writes this, these two books from when Paul writes these, talk more about the end times and that final generation and all the things that are going to be taking place more than the rest of uh, his books combined. And so when, by the time we get to chapter five of this, we're going to, and we talked about this last week, but there in your outline, in chapter five, it's going to say, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. And so as they're, they're nervously looking for peace and safety, and that's certainly the buzzwords in our world today, some, some incredible things happen. And we talked about how the Bible says that the world is going in a certain direction. And so when we get to chapter or to Second Thessalonians, interesting, we're going to see some interesting things there, but I put one verse there in your outline. Paul is going to tell us in Second Thessalonians, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And he's going to talk about how it's already happening, 
but there's going to come a time when, when it's going to increase. So 2,000 years ago it was already happening, and he calls it the mystery of lawlessness. And, and so what I did there is I put that word lawlessness on your outline, and anomias, uh, anomias, and that uh, just means contempt and violation of the law. And when we get there, we're going to find that it's going to have kind of this, this time period and this person that's really going to spearhead this, but it's going to increase as we get there. There's going to be this contempt for the law. And uh, very interesting, that word anomias, um, uh, in the Latin, this is in the Greek, but our, Greek, our English word animosity comes from the word animus. And at that time, there was a lot of crossover because the Roman Empire uh, mostly spoke Greek. So there's some crossover between the words. And so many suggest that this word anomies uh, is also the root of our English word animosity. And that could very, very, very well be true, especially when you look at the definition of what it actually means. And so th- there's, that's just going to be part of, of some of the things that we see. But I love it says the mystery of lawlessness. You ever, you know, in this time period where there's going to be sort of this disregard for for the law, you ever look at uh, this person, that person, this group, that group, and you go, why do they do that? I mean, it's a mystery to me that, that, that this, this person, this group, this whatever, would behave like this in, in lawlessness. You ever wondered that? You look at somebody, well, that's the mystery, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Much, much more. But the, um, in this time of what we might say craziness going on, chapter 3 is going to be so important because Paul is going to say, as you see these things taking place, he says this there in your outline, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. And that word there is agape for one another and for all people. And uh, it's interesting. He says, may you be uh, increased in agape. And we're going to find that that's a love that only God can give you. And it's going to be very, very different than what we see going around us. So again, this book, the theme, First and Second Thessalonians, is going to be the end times. So every chapter ends with a reference to Jesus coming back. So if you're there in chapter 3, go to chapter 1. Just go to the, the very last verse. We'll do this very, very quickly. But chapter 110, and it says, "...to wait for his Son from heaven..." whom he raised, that is Jesus, uh, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And we'll talk about what that means later on. And then in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? And the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. So every chapter will end with a reference to Jesus coming back. So we'll see that as we go, and then we'll be talking about that too. But just by way of reminder, for those of you who've been following through, um, we've been looking at this map. Now, you might not remember everything that we talk about in First and Second Thessalonians, but by the time that we're done, you're going to be experts in Middle Eastern geography. So that's, that's going to be cool. So if you go all the way to the right of the map and all the way down to the bottom, as our story picks up, you have the city of Jerusalem, and that's in southern Israel. Many are surprised to find that Paul the Apostle is only in Jerusalem for a few weeks of his entire adult Christian life. Uh, His home church is actually 300 miles up the coast in the city called Antioch. We would say modern-day Turkey today. And that church sends Paul on a missionary journey, and he's been on his second missionary journey, and he goes across 
what they used to call in those days Asia. We say Turkey today. And so he goes all the way across Asia and he comes to the city of Troas. Now in Troas, the Lord leads him to cross over and go to Macedonia, we would say Greece. And he comes to this town of Philippi. So let's go to the next map. And uh, what we find is as he's there in Philippi, uh, he, the church is going well, people are becoming believers, but he gets arrested and he receives a Roman beating. And it's in that time he's beaten so bad that he will be forever disfigured. He survives that and they get him out of town. And a few days later, still bleeding, scabbing over, uh, disfigured, he comes down to the city of Thessalonica. And that's where he, uh, he'll be riding back to. And as he's there, there's going to be a riot uh, once again. And they recognize that if Paul takes another beating, he's not going to survive. So they get him out of town and Paul heads down the coast and he goes to Athens. And I just want to be aware of where Athens is. That'll be important for our study today. And from there, he goes to the town of Corinth. And while he's at Corinth, about six months after he leaves Thessalonica, he's going to write back to the, the church in Thessalonica. So as, as our story picks up, and as we've said the last couple of weeks, I'd like to begin each week by just uh, reminding us who it is that Paul is writing to, uh, who his audience is. So there in your outline, as he's at Thessalonica, it says there in your outline, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a, and it says, large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. The idea is that the bulk of this church, they don't come from a Bible background, uh, going to church, Jesus, this is all brand new stuff to them. And uh, Paul will tell them in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they used to worship idols, so this is all brand new to them. So he has left Thessalonica, he comes to Corinth, from there he's going to write back, and as we said last week, Paul realizes that he's never going to go back to Thessalonica to pastor that church. And so he's going to write some things that they're going to need to know as they go forward without him. And uh, keep in mind that he's writing to a church, and this, the theme of this church is going to be life in the end times, which is going to be very important for those of us who live now in the end times. So last week he wrote to them in chapter 2, and we talked about that. He talked about how when he was there, this is how he modeled ministry, and this is how he did that. And uh, that, that's important because they were going to have to go forward, and they needed a paradigm of, of how church and ministry is supposed to be. And uh, last week we talked about how many of us come from very different backgrounds of how church is supposed to be. And so uh, Paul said, here's how it's supposed to go. So we're going to get into this today, and this is going to be very important, especially as we consider um, this book and how uh, it deals with the, the end times. And uh, there's a lot more than I can say uh, that can be said that we can do today because uh, we only have so much time. But we're going to call this today Living Our Faith in the Last Days. And so in chapter 3, there on your outline, the emphasis is going to be your faith. Now what I didn't tell you last week is that the phrase, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, kept appearing in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he's going to continue to say, 
your faith, your faith, your faith. What's going to be very important to us to understand is he's not going to talk about the faith, but your faith. And then next week in chapter 4, he's going to talk about our holiness and sanctification. Now, if you grew up in a church background like I did, uh, when we talked about holiness and sanctification, it meant this long list of rules and things that you were not allowed to do. How many of you come from a church background like that? And so what we're going to find is that, that uh, that's not really Paul's view of holiness and sanctification. So it's probably going to be very refreshing for many of us. But we're going to jump in today. But I want you to highlight as we go through, in case I miss it, every time he says your faith, your faith. And uh, that's, that's the theme of this chapter, living our faith in the last days. So verse 1, it says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens. And we saw where Paul went to Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And you want to underline that. So Paul goes to Athens. They send Timothy back to Thessalonica and in the region there. Paul then goes to Corinth. And then verse 3 He says, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. And I've underlined the word afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And and so it's come to pass, just as you know. And uh, you keep in mind that Paul was beaten in Philippi. There was a riot there in Thessalonica. And then he goes to Corinth and there's another riot uh, everywhere that that, that he goes. And so verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. And I've underlined that. For the fear that the tempter, and I've underlined tempter, might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul sent Timothy to encourage them in their faith and help them to be uh, stable and secure in their faith. And uh, so Paul says, as he goes, he says, "I I was concerned that you would be disturbed by these afflictions, by these afflictions. And I put that word there on your outline. The word there is thalipsis, and it means pressure, afflicted, anguish, burden. But I want you to underline the word persecution, persecution tribulation or trouble. Um, Thalipsis or afflictions, that word thalipsis is the word that they would use when they were making wine and they had to smash the grapes and they'd smash the grapes and everything would just kind of shoot out is the idea. So uh, Paul likens persecution to that. And then Jesus would say this, he would say, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. But in the world, you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Here's what Jesus is telling us, and here's what Paul is telling us. And I want you to write this down. Paul is reminding them that this isn't heaven. This isn't heaven. Uh, there, There are many people who will walk with Jesus as long as everything is going well. But at the first sign that this isn't heaven, it doesn't go their way all of a sudden they're done because they think that it's all just supposed, you know, if God's in it, everything's supposed to just work out. I point this out because if you're like me, I grew up in a background where when bad things happened, they didn't turn out the way that I wanted them to. I always deep down felt like God was just 
a little bit mad at me, and that's why those things were happening. Am I the only person who, who grew up thinking that way? I am, aren't I? That's always my biggest fear. <laughs> yeah, Dan, you're the only person. <laughs> so, so here's what happens. When you and I go through difficulty, you know, it's very common to think that there must be something wrong in, in our relationship with God. And, and through the years since we've been here, uh, we've heard different things as people go through and they'll say, you know, somebody said this to us and they'll say things like, well, you know, you're suffering because you have unconfessed sin. Mm, okay, uh, maybe, I, I don't think so, but okay. Some will say, well, you're suffering because you have lack of faith. And uh, then we all feel guilty about that. Um, so, some people will say, say that you're suffering because you're in the wrong denomination, the wrong church. And let me just say, if you go to another church and you're having a difficult time. <laughs> Stay at your church. Stay at your church. And, and, uh, and, and uh, so, but, but here's what I want to say to you. You could just be going through a difficult time because Satan hates you. He hates you. You know, um, Satan knows that the only way that he can hurt God is to hurt what God loves the most. So last week I shared with you, you know, somebody takes my car, they wreck it, you know, eh, it's metal, we'll get over it, get another one, not a big deal. Uh, somebody embezzles my bank account, not a lot there, you know, we'll get over it, that's fine. <laughs> but, but parents, wouldn't you agree, somebody hurts your kid and it's war. You don't get over that. And Satan knows that the only way that he can hurt God is to hurt what God loves the most. And so he tempts us, he comes along and he lies to us and uh, you know, tries to make God the bad guy in our life. And you know, you know how could a loving God, and, and, and although it's Satan that's doing that, he, he uh, makes us feel that God is mad at us. And so, so Satan will sometimes attack through persecution, whatever he can do. And so Paul's concerned that as they're going through a difficult time, they might be tempted to listen to the wrong voice. So verse 5, I'll read it again. He says, he says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about your faith for, the, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor may be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith, and you want to underline that, and love that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us as we also long to see you. One of the things that you'll find is that Paul realizes that the difficulty that they're going through is revealing the truth about their faith. Again, as I said a few moments ago, we've all met people who are all in with Jesus until things aren't really going the right way. And, uh, and they're, they're done with God, they're done with Jesus. And, and uh, the reason for that is uh, they think that this is supposed to be heaven. Did I have you fill that out on your outline, by the way? He's reminding me that this isn't heaven. And we look forward to heaven when we get there and these things don't happen. These things don't happen. Well, verse seven, he says, for this reason, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. By the way, that, that standing firm and being stable is also a theme in, in this chapter. It's just said in, in different ways. Well, 
Paul is encouraged because he hears that in their difficulty, they're standing firm in the Lord. And that's how he knows his work was not in vain. They, they really were converted. They really do love the Lord. And they're all in with Jesus regardless of their circumstance. Well, verses 9 and 10, he says, For what can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And you want to underline that. We're not going to go into it today, but we will in chapter 5. But the emphasis of Paul's prayer life is always others. He's always praying for others. And uh, we'll talk about that more, but uh, he's praying for them in their situation. And that's very important. When you pray, you always want to pray for God's kingdom first, all that God wants to do. And then you want to pray for others. And then you want to pray for yourself. God wants to answer your prayers too. But many times we flip that and, we, and it's very easy for us to pray for ourselves and about ourselves and, and, and all of that. But we notice something, it's not on your outline, but do you remember when Jesus was being tempted and uh, there he's about to go to the cross and uh, he turns to Peter and he says, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Remember that prayer? And, uh, but he prays that for Peter but Peter's faith fails. You know, he denies Jesus. Uh, but whose faith didn't fail? Jesus's faith. And so there is this aspect of when we pray for other people, God uses that to strengthen us and, and, and cause us to stand firm. We'll talk about that in uh, chapter five. Well, verses 11 through 13, Paul prays a three-verse prayer. Here he goes. He says, now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. And there's that word agape, by the way, for, for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. And we'll talk about that more next week. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so every, every chapter has a reference to Jesus coming back. We'll put those pieces together in a couple of weeks. But what I wanted to do today in uh, the few moments that we have is I, I wanted to um, just take a few minutes and talk about how what Paul here, the emphasis is on your faith, your faith. The idea is how you live it out. He's not talking about the faith, uh, but he's talking about your faith. And so I, I want you to write this down. Paul's concern here is your faith, not the faith. Now, certainly he's concerned about the faith, but here he's talking about your faith. Now, that's going to be important. Now, verse 10, I put on your outline. As we, night and day, keep praying most earnestly that we might see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. So, in this book that is all about the end times and you and I living this out in the end times, what is it that could be lacking in their faith, or our faith we might say, that is so concerning to Paul? So 
in this book, again, that's all about the end times, Paul is concerned that in their difficulty, their afflictions, the things that they're going through, that Satan, the the tempter as he calls him, might show up. And in his showing up, might tempt them uh, maybe to distort some of the beliefs about who God is and how God operates among his, among his people. And maybe since uh, this book deals mostly with the end times, uh, maybe this chapter, yes, for them, but maybe also for you and I who live in what we would call the end times. So Paul wants to show up for them and supply what's lacking in their faith. Again, the concern that the tempter might come and distort some things. Some of us come from a background when Paul says, uh, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, They would take that to say, I want to show up and and, uh, supply what's lacking in the faith. The idea to give them more and more information. But here when he talks about your faith, the idea is more of how they live this out. So it here he's not talking about more and more information. And, and one of the things that we notice throughout this chapter is that he keeps attaching their faith to prayer. And, and so uh, we'll, we'll certainly see that in, in, as we go and throughout this book, certainly. But maybe uh, because of the difficult times they're going through and there's persecution and all kinds of difficult times they're facing He wants to make sure that they are established not necessarily in the faith because they are, but he wants them to be established in their faith. So uh, I want to share just a couple of thoughts as we wrap this up today that I think would be important for them as they face difficulty. And I think it's important for us in this day as we face some difficulty and some very challenging times as we look around. So a couple of thoughts. First of all, there on your outline, you'll recall, and we've been looking at this for for several months, but Paul defines faith for us. And here's what he says there in your outline. He says in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, now faith is the assurance. And I want you to underline the word assurance. Of things, not thing, but things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The, The idea is that I don't see it, but I know that it's there. Not because I see it and I have assurance. So we're called to pray throughout the Bible in faith, and faith is assurance. So it's with the assurance that God is going to do it. I would suggest that we cannot pray in faith with assurance unless we know what God's will is, what God wants to do. Uh, Otherwise, it's not really assurance. It's not really assurance. So do you remember where we call it the Lord's Prayer? Uh, Some of you come from a background that's called the Our Father. And so Jesus tells his disciples, he says, pray in this way. He doesn't say pray this. Um, and, And so he's giving us a way to pray. And one of the things that he says, and I put it there in your outline, He says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That word come can also be translated as manifest, uh, be manifested. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A couple of things. First of all, apparently we're called to pray for his will to be done on the earth um, as it's done in heaven. The idea is that if, if we don't pray, then it might not happen. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, I know if it's God's will, it's just going to happen. Well, that might not be true. Uh, because he calls us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't just happen. And sometimes when people pray, they will say, um, they'll, they'll pray about something and then they'll say, well, Lord, you know, I'm asking you to do this, but your will be done. If it's your will to, to do this, then I'm asking you to do this. But here, Jesus says, pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to ask myself, and go ahead and write this down, I want to ask, what is God's will in heaven? What is God's will in heaven? When you, when you think about heaven, um, do, do you think anybody is sick in heaven? And so he says, I want you to pray that his will would be done here as it is in heaven. So how about this? Do you, do you think everybody's adequately provided for in heaven? Think anybody's broke, can't pay their mortgage, you know, not working out, foreclosure and all that? Uh, or would you say, no, they're, they're okay, they're okay. So he says, I want you to pray that my will be done here just as it is in heaven. So, um, so there is this, I, I want to ask myself, what is it, you know, what is God's will in heaven? He tells me to pray that for here. And apparently, if I don't pray that, uh, it might not happen. Another thing, if you've been around for, for some time, you'll know that, that this really resonates with me, is that we are told that we are created in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. And there's a lot that we can learn about God by looking at ourselves. For me, I grew up in the church. I went to Christian college. I went to seminary. And uh, but I can tell you that I've learned a lot more about God by being a dad than all of the Bible college, all of the seminary, and, and everything that, that I've been through. I've learned more about God by, by being a dad than, than everything else. And, and so the reason for that, there in your outline, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So because you and I are created in the image of God, we are unique. We are unique in the creation. So animals, animals, uh, they don't really care after a certain period of time how their offspring do. No, but you and I created in the image of God, we are passionately concerned about our children. So last year in our family, a little self-disclosure here, um, um, one of our children has been bugging us for years uh, for us to buy her a puppy, a baby pug puppy. And so we did because she promised. <laughs> Need I go further? Have you all been there? I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so Charles, Charlie the pug, Charles, he came home with us. And it's been a joy. It's a year and a half. But not one time in the past year and a half has Charlie's mom ever reached out to see how he's doing. <laughs> not one time. 
and, and now here's why. Animals are created, but not created in the image of God. You and I are unique in the creation and that we are created in the image of God. So we are passionate about our children and how they're doing because we're created in his image. That makes sense? So I want to ask myself, what do I want from my child? Do I want my child to be safe? Do, do I want my child to be provided for? Well, because you and I are created, we get that because we are created in his image. So he calls us to have faith. We'd say assurance, assurance. We are to pray for his will to be done here, just like it's done in heaven. And I'm created in his image. So, so I care for my children and I get that because I'm created in his image. I care for my children because and the way that he cares for me. So I, I think in these last days, Paul would want to supply what is lacking in our faith, um, uh, something that maybe if we're not careful, the tempter might talk us out of, might talk us out of. So I want to just give us a couple of things here today as we go through this. And I'm going to call this some things I never have to pray if it be your will. I never have to pray, Lord, if it be your will, because it's his will. So the first thing, and I want you to write this down, I never have to pray that people come to know Jesus. You know, Lord, is, is it your will? We would never say, Lord, is it your will that somebody comes to know you? So here's what he says. The Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we would never pray, Lord, please save this person, reveal yourself to this person, if it be your will. It's, it's always his will. He, he wants people to come into relationship with him. Uh, now, we understand that uh, his will is for everybody to come into relationship with him, but they have a will too. Uh, but, but it's always his will. And, and we know this because we're created in the image of God. Many of you know our family, one of the things that we chose to do early on as our kids were small, we would always go camping. And, and you also know that we have 12 kids. And after all, what is more relaxing than five or six days in a small camper with 12 kids? It's, you know, it doesn't get any more relaxing than that. We come home to vacation. So can you imagine, um, so there, all the kids running around in the woods there and, and out they come and this mom says, time for dinner and everybody comes back. But 11 kids show up, but one kid doesn't show up. And so what's mom going to say? Mom says, you go out, you find that other kid. Mom, is that pretty much how it goes? You go find that other one. I go out, I look, I look, I look. I can't find, there's one more out there. I come back, I go, I just can't find them, you know? But here's what I'm thinking. We still got 11. That's a lot of kids. Do you know how much these kids cost? Here's what I'm thinking. If we just invest in these 11, we could have some quality kids. Is mom gonna let that one go? Moms? Absolutely not. So that's God's passion. He wants them all to come in. You never have to pray that. He wants them all. Another thing that we could say, I never have to pray, thy will be done, uh, that God wants to provide for all my needs. That God wants to provide for all my needs. You know, you and I are created in the image of God. And uh, because of that, we are passionate about taking care of our children. If anything, we, we all wish that we could do more, you know, because we, we love them so much. But can you imagine your child coming home and, uh, and your child coming home and saying, well, I'm just so hungry. 
I'm, I'm just, I, I, all day, and I'm just, I'm, I'm starving, and uh, mom, dad, uh, are, are you going to cook dinner? I, I'm just so hungry, and I, and I want to eat, but thy will be done. If, if it's your will for me to eat, then I want to eat, but, but if you don't want me to eat, then I accept your will. And I'll go to school tomorrow, and I'll tell everybody, it's my parents' will that I don't have food, and and this is how they show me how much they love me and it draws me close to them. And I'll tell all of my friends, my parents don't feed me because they love me so much and it's their will and I'm living out their will. And my friends are going to say, boy, I wish I had parents like that. Uh, that would make no sense, right? And the reason it makes no sense is because you're created in the image of God. I mean, how long would it be before your kids come home and every day is like, would you cook dinner for me today? But only if it be thy will. And then the next day, I'd like dinner, but only if it be thy will. I mean, how many days are you going to put up with that before you tell them not <laughs> to do that? Uh, you, you're not going to do that for long because of course it's your will. You, that you're the parent. That's what you want to do. Uh, and, and so you, you, it'd be annoying. As a matter of fact, this was very annoying to Jesus. Notice there in your outline, chapter 8 of the book of Mark, it starts out with Jesus feeding thousands of people, but just a few verses later it says, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they have no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces, uh, full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And uh, he tells the story about the other time. He says, and the other time. And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Of course, it's his will to provide for all of your needs. There's so many verses that talk about God wants to provide. Um, so I never have to go before God to say, God, if it be your will. Parents, it would be insulting to you as a parent if your child did that to you. But many people, they go before God and they say, if it be thy will, you don't want to do that. You can't have assurance before God and pray in faith until you know that it's his will to, for you to have all that you need. Does that make sense? So another thing that I would say uh, that I never have to pray, Lord, if it be your will. I never have to pray, Lord, if it be your will, that God wants to heal me physically, that God wants to heal me physically. Many people in our time will say, you know, Lord, if it be your will, please heal me, but, but, but only if it's your will. Interesting thing in, in the Old Testament, nation of Israel comes out of Egypt and God tells them, I will never put disease on you. I'll never do that. And then he says, not only will I never do that, there in your outline, he says, but I'm the Lord who heals you. I'm the Lord who heals you. So you would never wish disease on your child. And God says that he would never do that. He says, not only am I not going to wish it on you, but I'm the Lord, your healer. In the Bible, the only person who ever came to Jesus, there was only one person that came to Jesus and said, you know, Lord, if you're willing to heal me, there in your outline, says a leper came to him and bowed to him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I'm willing, be clean, be cleansed. The issue is never his will. That's not the issue. He wills that, that we're well. But you can never pray 
with assurance until you come to the place where you recognize that he wants that for you. So very quickly, a little self-disclosure here. When I was eight years old, there was a girl who lived on our street, and uh, we were in a conversation, and it came up that I said, I can beat you in a bike race, and I can beat you even with a bike that has training wheels on. So she says, you're on. So we hopped on our bikes, and off we went. I borrowed a little kid's bike with training wheels. And what I forgot is that when you go to turn, you can't really bank when you have training wheels on. Does that make sense? This is kind of humbling for me to tell you this here, but, but we came into the first turn and she banked, but I didn't because of the training wheels and I slammed into a car. Now, when I slammed into the car, what happened was I broke this arm, but it was one of those breaks where like this part of the arm was going this way, but this part was going over here on this way. It was, so it was, a, it, was, it was a very serious break. So imagine I go walking into the house, you know, they do my arms over here like this and I go to my parents I go ah my arm hurts take me to the hospital but only if it be your will <laughs> and can you imagine I say but I if it's if, if if it's your will for me to have this broken arm I accept your will and I'm going to live with your will with this broken arm imagine me going to school the next day in pain I got my arm hanging over here people go what happened to you I go well my arm's broken over here and I hit this thing and you know, and I went to my parents and they just said, you know what? This is my will for you. And uh, this is how I'm going to come to understand how much they love me and it's going to grow me close to them. It's a lot of pain, but because it's their will, I accept that and, and I rejoice in this broken arm. And, and, uh, and all my friends say, boy, I wish I had parents like you had. What do you think about that? Well, here, here's what I can tell you. Parents, it would not be your will for your child. And you can't find a verse that God says, this would be my will for my children. And so you love your children. But here, here's what I think would be the concern in our day, in the last days, that the tempter might come along and might tempt us and distort who God really is so that we would believe some very strange things about our loving Father. And we might think that this is really what He wants for us when He's saying, I didn't make you sick and I don't want that. Now, I'm not saying that sickness doesn't happen. I'm not saying that uh, we all experience healing. What I'm saying is you never, ever, ever want to say, this is God's will for me. You can't find that in your Bible. And you can't pray with assurance for healing until you are sure that it's God's will for healing. So keep that in mind. Finally, another thing that we find, verse 10 very quickly, if I can, we'll wrap up with this. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Um, write this down. Paul prayed, but it didn't happen immediately. Didn't happen immediately. Took about four years. You never let the timeline to determine God's will. Paul would write that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So as you look at some of these things that you face, you don't want to say this must be God's will. You want to go to God's word and find his promise and say, I'm going to pray and stand on that 
not these experiences. With that, we're going to go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, as we do, if you're here today, maybe, just maybe, you've not come to a relationship with Jesus because you believe that he was the bad guy and you listen to the tempter who's distorted who he really is. You have the opportunity to invite Jesus into your life. Let's pray. Father, as we close today, I pray that we would come to know you for who you really are, not through some of the distortions that may have come our way because we have listened to what we might say the tempter who has distorted who you really are. And uh, Lord, for some of us, maybe we've rejected you because we've listened to the wrong voice, but now realizing you really do love us and you created us because you care about us and you want to have that relationship with you. And there's something in our spirit that says, I want that. So if that's you today, you just say, Jesus, come into my life. I accept your forgiveness. I want to follow you. And he promises that if you invite him in, he will never leave. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.